I nearly called in and said, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I think it's the coffee and book day. But my wife reminded me I'm the preacher, so I, I showed up anyway. I do have some friends from my Sunday school class in Fort Worth. They're here today, uh, Howard and Kara. I think they were sent by the class because I haven't showed up to Sunday school class now for about five months. So I think they're here to ch- visit me and check on me, make sure I'm doing all right, but it's good to have them. I want you to take your Bibles today and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to cover the 14 verses of the opening part of chapter 5. In a moment, we'll read the first seven. This really is hitting right at our cultural situation right now and should strike a chord with each and every one of us of what God is expecting in our lives. One thing I want to remind you of simply is this. In Romans 12, 2 is very clear when it says, Do not be conformed to the world. Do not let it shape nor mold you, but you be transformed. Metamorphosis is literally the Greek word behind it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The trouble is that most of the time the world's very good at conforming us, shaping us into a mold. You know, as a kid growing up, I had a hero. His name was Mickey Mantle. Now, some of you young guys may not even have any idea what that name is about, but to a young kid who loved baseball and who wanted to play third base for the Houston Astros, just never quite got there. But that's what I wanted, worked my whole life to maybe attain that position in life. I wanted to be Mickey in everything that he did, how he walked, how he uh, went on the field, how he carried his glove, how he swung his bat. And I mean, I, I could tell you anything and everything. I can tell you of the 61 Yankees, they're one of their greatest years ever. First base was Moose Gowran. Second base was Bobby Richardson. Shortstop was Tony Kubek. Third base was Cleet Boyer. Behind the plate with Elston Howard, the leading hitter in the league that year at 300, 348, his batting average. In right field, the famous Roger Maris, 61 home runs. Left field, Yogi Berra, one of the greatest characters who ever lived on the earth as far as baseball. And he was at the end of his career, but still doing well. And sitting in center field was my idol, Mickey Mantle. I got to meet him in the early 90s. My wife is related to Mickey Mantle, which made my life, till I realized it's a very distant relative, so we didn't ever get to meet him, but I finally did. One of the biggest disappointments of my life was meeting my hero. I, I, when I walked away from being with Mickey Mantle, he's one of the saddest human beings ever met, serious drinking problem, very angry about all that had happened in life. And I'm going, you had the most treasured life ever, sports hero in New York City, World Series champions, and yet he's finished in a very bad way. Well, you know, I've grown up since then and began to realize we should model our lives not against people like that, but against good men and women. But our real model is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the challenge today is it's going to be who are you modeling your life out? And we're called to be imitators of God. So if you'd stand with me, I'm going to read the first seven verses. You follow along in your Bibles. And this is what God's Word says this morning. Therefore, be imitators of God because you're beloved children. And so on that basis, you'll walk in love just as Christ also loved you, gave himself up for all of us. He was an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you, the people of God, as is proper among the saints. Nor will there be no filthiness, 
silly talk, or coarse gesturing, which are not fitting. But what is fitting is the giving of thanks. And you need to know this. You already know this with certainty, but I'm reemphasizing it. He's basically saying that no immoral or impure or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and also in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Which goes back to my opening statement. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Father, be with us now as we look at this today. Speak to us in a clear way. Help us to be able to see within the setting of where we live today how important this section is that we follow you closely in all that we do and say. Now watch over and guide us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so very simply here, that opening verse tells us what? You're to pattern your lives after our Lord. Everything you do and say should be after Him. And Paul's clear on this when he jumps out. you notice the word therefore. Any preacher you probably have ever heard always says, when you got therefore, look at why it's there. What's it there for? Well, it's everything we've been talking about up to this point, through the first four chapters. And what have we talked about? Well, quickly, we said that we were the most blessed people in all the world, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and nothing, nothing, no one, any situation can ever take that away from you. What God has given you is yours. And, and, And you need to understand, and that's why that first chapter is so important. If you begin to understand what God has done for you through Christ, it will impact you and influence everything that you do here on out. And that's why Paul breaks into a prayer around verse 16 of chapter 1 when he says, I just pray you will understand this. The Spirit will give you understanding. You'll understand all this and what God's doing and the power and everything that's a part of this. And he says, what's amazing about these blessings is in chapter 2 is you were dead in your trespasses and sin. The world had you. They were influencing you. Satan had control over you. And the spirit of the age was at work within your life. And you were children of wrath. You were going to face the judgment of God because of who you were and how you were living your life. But I love chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, with the great love which he has loved us, made us alive. Man, our salvation is the greatest miracle that's ever taken place in your life and in my life. He made us alive. He not only made us alive, but he got us up. He raised us up for what purpose? To live. Not to live the way we've been living because that's not living. We're now to live our lives in the most amazing way, in a way that will bring peace, joy, and happiness. And then he said, you also need to know you're seated in the heavenlies already. The rest of chapter 2 then begins to tell us that there's this huge plan at work that God's bringing together Jews and Gentiles, and the word Gentile is the nations, people from all the different nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's bringing us into one new man. He took away the enmity, the hatred that happens sometimes between nations and races. He brings together these people out of that, and we come together in peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he is taking us and he's building us, as it says at the end of that chapter, on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Christ is what holds it all together, but he's building a building. And when that building is finished, when that last stone goes in, as Peter calls us living stones in his letter, when that last one comes in, then there's going to be a trumpet sound and Christ is going to return in all of his glory. And you and I are going to be a part of the greatest finish that the world could ever imagine. The world thinks we're falling apart and we'll die in some apocalypse of some type. 
Well, they may and when they face the wrath of God, but you and I finish well. We are going to be in his presence. We're going to one day be a part of a new heaven and new earth. And so Peter, Paul's been telling us this and that. And in chapter 3, he goes, listen, guys, I'm in prison because of all of this. I don't back down from what I say. And I cannot believe the least of all men and women who've ever lived, I've been given the most amazing privilege. I get to tell this story, and I get to preach this. And this man went throughout the known world, and he covered miles upon miles. He, he walked or was on ships, distances you and I couldn't even begin to fathom, to, from town to town, village to village, and he shared nothing but the good news of Christ, and he impacted and influenced the world in the most amazing way. And he says, I pray you understand like I do the height, the depth, the breadth, and the love of Christ. And then in chapter 4, he begins to say, now because of that, I want you to walk worthy. And he begins to explain what that meant because there's a unity. You and I are of the same faith, one baptism, one faith. We're one together, and we move forward. We work hard at that. And as we move forward, we come to understand the purpose of the church is God raises up people like me and others who teach and do that part, but he raises up the rest of us to fill the different roles within the setting, and we work to build us up in the body of Christ to maturity so that we're not deceived nor led astray. And then he says this, your old life is gone. You got rid of that, and I've given you a new life. And over the last two weeks, we've looked at the inward part of that new life, and that was what? You will tell the truth, quit lying, because that's how we live most of the time before we met Christ. Two, you get your anger under control. Three, you work hard. Nobody owes you anything in this life. Nobody needs to take care of you. God gave you two hands, told you to get on your two feet, and to take care of yourself and quit taking from everybody else. And lastly, he said what in the command? Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. You know, when I started coaching football back in the fall, whenever I had this kid show up, he was played before, he said, Coach, let me give you a secret. I won't make you a good coach. I said, okay, I need all the help I can get. What do you got? He says, these boys get beat down by everything in life, and they get beat down sometimes by the coaches. You encourage them. You be the greatest encourager they ever had. And I spent the rest of my season doing that. I think that's why I got the name Coach Grandpa, or maybe because I was just too old for him. I'm not certain. But I, I encouraged them. And by the end of the year, we had a team. You and I are called to be encouragers, every one of us, because this is a tough life. This is not easy. In the culture in which we live in, the news that we watch, the things that unfold around us, there's so many things that can hurt and disappoint us, and we need to be constantly reminded of who we are in Christ. And so now we come into chapter 5, and therefore, because of all of that, therefore, because of everything he said at this point, now I want you to imitate God. Now, let's look at that a minute. The word imitate here is the word uh, mimic. I'm going to really date myself, but some of you will join in with me on this. Do you remember who Marcel Marceau was? One of the greatest mimes that the world has ever known. He was on our TV all the time when I was a kid. If you don't know what a mime is, I'm not going to demonstrate it because I can't do what he did. But you, you, you by your moves. He said it's the, uh, it's, mime is the art of silence. He could speak the most powerful way by just mimicking. And, and he was known mainly for being uh, Bip the Clown. Some people will remember that. But he could literally imitate any person, your mannerisms, everything to perfection. Never say a word and you know exactly what he was thinking. 
Well, here's what you and I are to do. We're to take the Lord Jesus Christ and we're to live our lives in such a way that we give perfect imitation, a mime of who Jesus is. You can do that. You know how I know that? Christ in you. You have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the one who loved you and gave himself for you. You're called to be an imitator of him. So how can you do that? Study the scriptures. That's why you need to be a student of the word. You need to know. Look at Jesus' life in the gospels. Look at how he spoke. Look how he acted. Look how he responded. That's what he wants us to do is live our lives just like him. Study the gospel. See how Jesus lived. Follow his example. Jesus said this in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. That's what we learn. We learn from him. And when he tells us to do that, he says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your soul. So the better you understand the scriptures, the more you'll be able to live your life each day, giving evidence of what it is to have Christ living in you. But the other way in which you can do that is watch the lives of godly men and women around you. You can learn a lot. Paul's going to say this, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me in another passage, the church at Thessalonica, and be imitators of me and be imitators of the Lord. In Hebrews, it says, don't be sluggish or lazy, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. Referencing later Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of fame of faith. You've had people in this church and in your lives who give great demonstration of literally what the presence of Christ is about. The greatest thing you can do is know your scripture and to follow some of the examples that they set for you. You know, last week I gave a tribute to my friend, G.W. Bandy, at the start of the sermon. One of my deacons was watching the message last Sunday morning, and he texted me Sunday afternoon when I got back home, and he said this. He said, Steve, what an incredible tribute you gave to G.W. He says, you are right on target with everything that you said. He said, I think I'm going to have to lie to you here soon and tell you I'm in hospice and see if I get in your sermon illustration and you'll speak to me the same way. Well, if you're watching this afternoon, I would do the same thing because you've been a great example to me. But over the years, I think of a Tommy Downs at Port Arthur. Gosh, what a man. He was in his 70s. He came down with bone cancer. He called me one day when I was pastor out in Spring Lake. And he said to me, He said, Steve, I know you cannot be here, but I'm having the elders of the church come and pray for me at the hospital. Would you pray for me at 2 o'clock? I said, Tommy, I'd be glad to. Wish I could be there, but it was too far, 700 miles. I couldn't get there. Didn't have the money to fly. So at 2 o'clock, I closed my office down. I went in and I just prayed that Tommy, that God would bless Tommy through these men as they laid hands on him. 3 o'clock, 3.30, 4, I'm anxious. So I called Tommy. I said, Tommy, what happened? He said, God answered the prayers. I said, you're kidding me. So what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to die. God told me it's time to come home. As they were praying, he said, it's time to come home. You know, during that time frame, he led two or three people to Christ while he was in the hospital. He counseled people in their wet marriages. That's a Tommy I always knew. All the way then, smile on his face, walked in the presence of God in the most amazing way. I think of Richard Sims at Live Oak. 
Richard was the fastest man in America in the 50s, was going to the Olympic till he pulled a hamstring and didn't get to go to the Olympics. I believe they were in Australia. He was not fast when I knew him. He lost all of his speed, but he was one of the godliest good men I've ever known. He led more junior high boys to Christ than anybody I've ever known when he was in his 60s. He came to me and said, Steve, it's time for me to quit teaching. I'm too old. These kids aren't going to relate to me anymore. And I said, well, give me time to find somebody. And every junior high kid, he had about 15 of them in his class, boys, came and said, don't let him quit. We hear everything he's saying. We need him to be in our class. And I think of how he lived his life. I, I can go to Ernest Green at Spring Lake or a Jim Pauline. Jim Pauline was at Village Parkway with me, a deacon. Had two sons murdered. One by a drunk driver and one in the field of duty as a game warder and was killed in Port Arthur. I walked with Jim through the death of his second son. Most difficult thing I think I've ever done. Largest funeral I've ever done in my life. There were over 3,000 police and everybody else and politicians. Everybody showed up for the funeral in Needland, Texas. When we came home to San Antonio to bury him, we were out at Mission Park North. And as I was waiting for the gift there, the police were there with all the way they do the funerals and everything. And I'm just waiting for the Paulines to show up. I see the limo that they're coming in. And so I walk over to them. And as we get out, Louise, the wife said, Steve, would you, would you talk to Jim and tell him he's not doing it today? And I said, doing what? He said, he wrote a hymn for his son and he's going to sing it at the graveside. And I said, Jim, you probably not going to be something good to do. He says, I'm doing it. I turned to Louise and said, he's doing it. I'm not stopping him. <laughs> he did it. One of the most amazing moments of my life to see a father who wrote a hymn for his son and sing it in tribute to his son. That wasn't new for Jim. That's a man I knew all through his life. And he and Louise were in church every Sunday. The killing of their kids as young men did not distract their faith, but they walked with the Lord. Their passion, compassion and kindness was stunning. I mean, I think of people like that. But then the greatest example would have been Mary Klaus, one of the most amazing women I ever met in my life. The way she cared for people, I can't find a flaw in Mary's life. See, I've been blessed just like you have. There have been people like that in your life, and you can follow their example of how to be able to live your life. We've been given the greatest gift in all the world, and we have the example of people of faith who've walked ahead of us to show us the reality of how it works. You follow them. You follow your Lord, and you follow those godly examples. And so when you do that, there are three areas that will change in your life. And those three areas are, one, you'll now walk in love. That is found there in verse 2. Now, Paul commands us to do this. This is an imperative command, which means patience and kindness especially will be seen in all that you do and say. And the people I've just called to name are people who did that, good men and women who live their lives in love. And why we're to do that is simply this, because Christ gave himself for us. He offered himself up for us. He gave a sacrifice to God, a one-time sacrifice so you didn't have to. And that was a fragrant aroma to the Father in heaven. You were given the greatest gift. Christ did it because he loved you. And so that love is set example for you of how you're to deal with everyone who is around you. So that then leads, if you live your life in love, you will now walk in moral purity. And in this world in which we live, and now this is one of the most critical areas 
of all that we all need to pay close attention to. So if you'll look there in verse 3, it says, But immorality, impurity, and greed must not be named among you. The word immorality in the Greek, I'm going to say it and see where your mind goes when I say the word. Pornea. Pornea. Our English word is what? Pornography. But this is more than just pornography. This is all things are outside the will of God. And he's saying this. The church at Corinth who had this in their midst, flee from this, run from this. I don't care what our culture is saying today. I don't care how they're making this look. It's wrong and it's dangerous and it's deadly and it's ruining people's lives. And you and I are called to flee. In fact, there's a church in Revelation that had trouble with this. You know which one it is? Thyatira. Thyatira, Jesus has some good things to say to them, but he says, I've got something against you, and this is very important that you pay close attention to all of this. You have a woman in your midst who's named Jezebel. She's not good, and she's giving you permission to live your life in an immoral way and telling you it's okay. You can do whatever you want to. Jesus later in that letter, to the, as he speaks to the church at Thyatira, says something that I don't hear anybody referencing much anymore. When it came to immorality, he says this. It is the deep things of Satan. It is the deep things of Satan. So you and I are called to get away from that. There are a lot of false teachers out there today on, on TikTok, YouTube, everyone else that have given permission to people to do whatever they want to. But you and I can't go there. Why? Because we're now going to imitate our lives after God and after good men and women that we have known. And we're going to walk now in the life that he's called us to live. And we're going to move forward in a good way. The second thing was impurity. And that's just the uncleanness, filth, or dirt. It's literally what it means. It means that which comes when your life is off base. Life doesn't get better. It gets worse. And you before long will find yourself literally in uncleanness, filth, and dirt. Literally, sometimes that is true in how people live their lives. But I want you to remember what Paul told the church at Romans. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, same word used here, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Paul had already said, using this word, that people became callous during their lostness. They'd given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of impurity with greediness. Impurity is a result of an immoral lifestyle. And so we're not to allow that in our lives at all. And I'm going to stop for a moment and just look. I can't see where all the staff is. But guys, you're held to an even tougher standard. You better keep your life clean. I've had to follow three pastors who were guilty of sexual immorality. It destroys. It hurts. It ruins the church. It ruins the kids of those that men. It has profound impact. In fact, you know what you're called to do? The one quality, and I don't hear this. This is me not hearing anybody else do this. This qualification is the second qualification you're supposed to have to be an elder or in a pastoral position. The first one is your life has to be above reproach. If it's not above reproach, you don't have a right to be within the position. But the second one says you're to be, English translation, the husband of one wife. And everybody goes strictly, immediately, I did this in seminary and everything else, goes to divorce. Does it mean divorce, not divorce, those kind of things. I'm different than everybody else at this point. The Greek says a one-woman man. I've known pastors who only had one wife but treated them like dirt. 
To me, they, didn't, they, they violated that particular passage. One woman man means that every woman in this church is safe in your presence. A one woman man means that the wife that God gave you is more important to you than anything else, and you give your life totally and completely to her for the rest of your life. That's what this is about. And so when we get to this part in here, I'm stopping for a moment to challenge your staff. You set a standard and you set an example for everyone else, how you live your life every single day. Because we need that. All of us need to be able to see others who are fighting the good fight and getting it right and setting an example of how to live. And then the last thing is greediness. Greediness somehow, it's the word covetousness, ties in with immorality. And I'm still debating in my mind what all that might mean. But it's always included together. And even in Romans 1, it's included together. But do you know what what covetousness or greediness is? is? It's wanting what is not yours. It's wanting what is not yours. Now, I don't know if you believe this or not, but I, I believe when Jesus says, I'll provide all your needs, and Paul says that also in, in Philippians, that everything I need, I've got. I don't need what you got. I don't need to look and say, okay, you got a real man's pickup. I've got a non-man's pickup, according to my boys. And so I now covet everything you got. No. My wife in the car, the tr- car in my truck the other day said, are you happy? Content. It's exactly what I needed. I'm all right in my Honda Ridgeline. It's going to work. Guys, let's be satisfied with the life God gave us and quit looking across the fence at everything else and thinking everybody else got it better. My dad was very wealthy and was worked with presidents of companies and traveled all over the world. And so I got to be around a lot of people and I've been around some very super wealth people. Some of the most unhappiest people I've ever met in my life had everything together. My idol, Mickey Mantle, was rich, famous, and great, and totally miserable. If God gives us absolutely nothing, come with me to Cuba. Sit and worship in Cuba with people who have nothing. And look at the joy within their heart and their mind of all that takes place. They're the most blessed people in all the world, and they know it, and they live it out. Then the third area, we're to love, be morally pure, Clean up your language. Paul has three areas again. Filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. Filthiness means obscenity. Silly talk is gossiping. Coarse gesturing is vulgar speech, indecency. Remember what Jesus said to the the Pharisees one day, you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? You can't. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Now, if you look, he tells us not to speak that way. How are we to speak? What does it say next? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Now, I grew up in oil fields. I worked at refineries. I played sports, so I know what filthiness, silly talk, coarse gesturing is all about. For my wife, it bothers her badly if she hears this because she grew up away from all of that. But the one thing I've learned is it's not going to be a part of our lives because I'm not mad nor angry about much of anything anymore. How can I be? How can I be mad and angry when I look at what I've been given in Christ Jesus, our Lord? What he wants from me is it's his will that I give thanks in all things that my mouth shows that. When I gave an illustration a moment ago of the people that I did, from Tommy Downs to Ernest Green, Richard Sims, Jim Paulin, or even Mary Klaus, that's what you heard from their mouth always. 
every day, never tearing anything down, but always building up, always grateful for everything. So that's what it is to be an imitator of God, walking in love, morally pure, and in thanksgiving. But let me stop with a warning. And this is where we'll conclude today. Because when I get to verse 5, there's a warning. And I think we need this within the church setting today. Because of all that we're hearing and seeing on our news, our televisions, our newspapers, about all that's going on, the craziness of everything from the trans stuff to the immorality to the gay stuff, everything else. Look at verse 5. For this you know with certainty. If you're truly in Christ, you know this is true. And what is it? No immoral, which is a word pornea, impure, or covetous person is going to make it. They will face the judgment of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no inheritance of any kind waiting for them. We've already been told that all who are in Christ have an inheritance, but we're told those who demonstrate this life will not inherit anything. You ought to go sometime and read Ezekiel 16. You might be shocked by this. One of the editors of the Express News attended my church, San Antonio Express News, and I preached a sermon one time in Ezekiel 16, and so he gave me the privilege to be one of the bloggers for the Express News, which I did for about five years. I became the number one blogger, and I wrote religious articles and biblical articles on the San Antonio Express News blog until I took a stand against the mayor of San Antonio on morality, and when I did that, I went to write my next article, and I was locked out. I was never allowed back in. My friend had left, so I had no connections anymore to get back in. But he told me this sermon changed his whole approach. And he's warning the people of Israel, here's what's wrong with you guys. He says, you're worse than your sisters, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, they were guilty of arrogance, of abundant food, gluttony, careless ease. They didn't help anybody. They were haughty, and they became committed to abominations. Therefore, I removed them. Israel, I removed you for the exact same reason, because you were worse than them. I'm a little nervous for our country. I really am. I've never been much of a pessimist when it came to this, but the more I watch and look and know through my connections, I'm a little concerned. So I want you to look at verse 6. Don't be deceived. Do not be deceived by all of this. Be misled. People are trying to deceive and mislead us when it comes to the things of morality nowadays. You do not be deceived. God's word still stands. It is still true, and his ways are still right. Truth never changes, and you and I are to live that. And in verse 7, do not be partakers with them. You were formerly of darkness, but you're not there anymore. You're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's what God has called us to do. And if you do that, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to hear from the Father in heaven. He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He's going to say in verse 10, now let's try to learn. Try learning what is pleasing to the Lord. I've given you a little bit of this today. And guys, I'm of the opinion today is more important than it's ever been that you and I live the kind of lives God's called us to live. And I want you to notice something. When we gather a lot of times and we're doing studies in the church, we want to know, I see some of you walking around with babies. We were talking to one of you today. And there's no manual that came with it. And, you know, there's, 
I never held my, a baby until I held my daughter the first time. I could hold a football, but I didn't know how to hold a baby. Uh, I just never did pay attention to that kind of stuff. I mean, you, it's a wonder she turned out all right after all these years with me as her dad because I knew absolutely nothing. So we need help, and we will want family, how to be a good husband and wife, how to be a good parent, how to be a good employee at work, those kind of things to help us. Have you noticed in the book of Ephesians, as we walk through it, he hasn't got there yet? He hadn't got to husband and wives, which he'll do later in chapter 5. He hadn't got to honor and father and mother, which is in chapter 6. He hasn't got to who's responsible for raising children, which we'll find in 6. He hadn't even got to how to handle when tough days come yet. And I've always wondered, why is that there at the end? And we put a lot of priority on that at the end. Because the priority we need is to understand who we are in Christ. To affect our character that we become the men and women he's called us to be. And that we then therefore walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. And walk in a manner as children of light because that's who we are. And what I've come to understand in all that is that when we get later on in Ephesians 5 of what family is supposed to be and what a mom and dad are supposed to be or how we're to respect our parents, it's easy to do because we now bring the character to be able to do that because we understand what Christ has done for us. And then we can handle the evil day because we've learned and developed the character within us in Christ Jesus so that when that tough day comes, we can plant our feet on a solid foundation and stand firm. And the last thing he even teaches in Ephesians is in the, in the sixth chapter is how to pray. For the prayer of a righteous man is what accomplishes much. And a righteous man is a man who walks in a manner pleasing. So the chapter today is important. What we dealt with today is critical in the world in which we live in. And you're called to be salt and light. And you're called to do it in a manner that imitates the Father in heaven. And I guarantee if you do that, God will bless you. And you'll have an impact and influence that you can never imagine because of your faithfulness to him. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you've given us to study your word. Lord, I thank you for the privilege to be able to look at this passage. It speaks much to what we face today and what the church is encountering. So give us the courage and strength to stand firm on your truths and to walk as people of love towards everyone, but not compromising truth. Be glorified in all we do and say is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.